Dear listener, if you're a Ruby on Rails developer or an aspiring Rails developer, I want to tell you about a resource I've created that I guarantee can help you become a better Rails developer, probably. I want to give you this resource for free. I'll tell you what it is and how to get it, but first, a little background. I've worked at a lot of jobs in the past where they had a certain class of problems. Their code was messy and hard to understand, which meant it took forever to make any changes. They couldn't refactor and clean up their code because it was just too risky to do so. There was no way to know you weren't breaking something. Deployments were also quite scary. We didn't have any automated tests, so each deployment had to be preceded with a round of manual testing which wasn't always very thorough. Not to mention, manual testing meant that we couldn't deploy with any reasonable frequency, and therefore each deployment was huge, which made the problem even worse. And nobody wants to work at a place like that, so we had trouble attracting and retaining good people. It's no fun to work at a place from which all the smart people have fled. The problem at these places, or at least one of the main problems, was that they didn't have strong testing practices. I'm willing to bet, dear listener, that you've worked somewhere that has had those same kinds of problems. Maybe you even work someplace like that right now. And you want it to get better, but maybe you don't know how to write tests. And maybe the people you work with don't know how either, or maybe they do, but they don't have time to teach you. That's where I come in. I've created a guide called the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing. You can find it at railstestingguide.com. I've been teaching Rails testing for years, and so I've seen all the common Rails testing questions. Here are a few examples. Which test framework should I use, RSpec or Minitest? What level of test coverage should I shoot for? What are the different kinds of Rails tests? What are all the Rails testing tools and how do I use them? How do I add tests to an existing Rails project? The Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing covers these questions and several others. To get the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing, go to railstestingguide.com. Now on to the episode. Today, I'm here with Ernesto Tagworker. Ernesto, welcome to the show. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, um, I've, I've lost track of how many times you've been on the show, but a number of times. But if anybody hasn't heard you on the show before, would you like to give us an intro? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm so happy your hiatus is over. When I saw on Twitter that you were taking a break, I was like, oh, no. No more code with Jason, but anyway, welcome back. Thanks. Um, and I'm so happy to be back. I'm the founder of Umbu Labs. Uh, we're a small software development shop uh, based in Philadelphia, although we've been 100% remote first for the past six years or so. And yeah, if you haven't heard of Umbu Labs, uh, we run a productized service called FastRuby.io that it's all about uh, Rails upgrades. So you might have heard or read one of our articles. Uh, and we recently started offering a performance audit in partnership with uh, Nate Berkopek. So check out fastruby.io. And if you're interested in performance or upgrade, uh, upgrading your dependencies. Yeah. How long have you been doing the fastruby thing? I, I think that's been going on for some number of years now, right? Yeah, I want to say it's been definitely more than five years. Um, it started as an experiment, and then it caught on, and we keep getting more and more companies interested in upgrading. So we've definitely learned a lot in the past five years. Yeah, I can imagine. 
Um, how did you get those first couple clients who were interested in that service? Yeah, so the first client, I think I was, you know, I wanted to work with this company. I reached out to them and I told them, I just floated the idea of we're thinking about launching this productized service to do Rails upgrades. And they were like, oh, wow, yeah, we need to upgrade. We are on Rails 4.0 and we need to get to, you know, 6. So they they were interested and there was no landing page at the time it was basically just me talking to this potential client and saying like yeah this is an idea that we're trying to do and we're probably going to launch a productized service for it um and they were like yeah sure let's let's start with that it sounds like a project you know that where the scope is clear you either get to 41 or you don't get to 41 and they had a huge monolith. Uh, they still do. Um, and that's how it started. It was like clear validation that there was someone out there who had the problem, had the budget, and trusted us enough to be like, yeah, you do the upgrade for us. I see. Um, and I assume that was that was a successful project because you kept doing it. Um, and then how many, you know, maybe you don't know the exact number off the top of your heads, but if you were to guess, um, how many, um, clients do you think you've done this upgrade service for at this point? Oh yeah, that's tough, tough to calculate. I'm really bad at saying numbers for this (laughs) because we do offer a code audit. That's basically an upgrade roadmap and that's kind of like a small package where we spend like two to three weeks uh, creating the report for our clients. And we've definitely delivered more than 20 of those over the years. Uh, and some of them decide to upgrade the project with us. Some decide to do it on their own, and that's totally fine. Um, but we've definitely worked on more than 15 upgrade projects in the past five years. And how big these projects tend to be? I, I assume they can vary quite a bit in size, but um, typically how long do those last? They, that's a good question. Um, these days we only talk to companies that are maintaining a huge monolith. So we're usually talking either about a combination of small Rails applications that are all outdated or a huge monolith that is you know still running like a really old version of rails so i want to say usually it's around like more than 500,000 lines of code um and sometimes you know there are smaller applications that we work with and those are nice cuz they're shipped much faster than than the huge monoliths but um yeah we're, we're usually talking about like huge applications Okay. And how come you gravitate gravitate toward those big ones? Is it maybe just like not all that economically viable to do the smaller ones and have it have the numbers all work out and stuff like that? Well, I think the companies that have smaller Rails applications, they can usually do it themselves because if the the application is not that complex and there's no not a lot of code in there, they can probably have their team do it. Um so that's why usually it's like huge uh, applications with big teams that, you know, just want to focus on their product roadmap, you know, fixing pa- fixing bugs, shipping features. And yeah, they, they kind of postpone the upgrade projects, you know, constantly. And then they're like, okay, shoot, <laughs> you know, we're running Rails 4.0 in production and this is no longer maintained there are no security patches getting delivered to this um so that's when they're like we need to fix it and they reach out to us or to other companies to to do it for them got it okay yeah so it's not so much that it's like not profitable enough to do the smaller projects it's just like the forces at work don't really lead to it making sense for for those companies to have somebody external do those projects makes more sense for the bigger companies with the bigger code bases that that kind of makes sense to me um what was i gonna say um oh yeah something i'm curious about is like you know you said you've been doing this for five years or whatever um learned a lot along the way how have things changed in terms of like 
do you approach these projects differently and maybe just kind of at a at a high level or we can go really deep into technical details if you want to but maybe for starters just at a high level do you approach these projects differently than early on and i'm curious even both at, from a from a technical perspective and a business perspective have either of those things like evolved over time yeah yeah i think it's definitely evolved uh pretty sure like in the first upgrade project we did we were not uh dual booting our application and that's something that we quickly learned like oh we can dual boot a rails application by s setting this environment variable and quickly switch between rails 4.0 and rails 4.1 um so that's one thing that we've learned sorry let me ask about that a little bit um What's the advantage of doing that? I assume it like mitigates risk somehow. Maybe, but yeah. Can you explain what's the advantage of that? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So one of the things that you're gonna find in an upgrade project is that you know you go, you tweak the gem file, you say, okay, it's Rails four one now. Command line bundle update Rails. Awesome! It just magically bundles. Cool. I'm gonna go run the test suite. You know. Because I'm, I follow Jason Sweat, so I know I need to write my test suite and keep it up to date. And I do a lot of TDD. Cool. So I have a really good test suite. I go run things with Rails 4.1, and I get these random failures. You know, and all I did was just change the version number in the gem file. So sometimes what happens is like something internally in rails changed and the callbacks in rails 4.0 and 4.1 are different or they execute in different places in the callback trace so when it comes to debugging that sort of stuff it becomes very handy to have like two different terminals and have like a break in, in the particular callback and you get to see basically the information that it's memory uh, in one terminal and then on the other with two different versions of Rails. Oh, so um, let me see if I understand this. So like yeah. you can compare the behavior of the old version and the new version to see like, okay, does this work the same in the old one as the new one? Okay, it does. How about this? Oh, this is like different in the old one than the new one. So I know that like this changed and then maybe that's how you can like figure out exactly what you need to address and stuff like that. Is that kind of the right idea? Yeah, that's the the right idea. You know, like there's great documentation for the versions of Rails, but even great documentation doesn't really tell you, oh, this particular callback method is not going to have the same data available to it in Rails 4.1 because something changed internally. Um, so, the, the yeah, the dual booting uh, code, what helps you is just to quickly switch between two versions and debug the two different versions. Um, you, you would need two different terminals to run like with Rails 4.1 in one of them and the other one with Rails 4.0. Uh, and you can quickly find the issue and be like, okay, I don't understand why, but in Rails 4.1, this piece of information is not available and at this point in time so i need to re-implement or, or change the way this uh, code is gonna solve the problem okay and do you sh okay so i'm thinking like if i were gonna try to do this i've never done a rails upgrade upgrade project of any great size I've, i did it recently on a fairly large application i upgraded it from six to seven but for whatever reason, it just was not very painful. It turned out to be like really easy. So I didn't gain a lot of battle scars from that experience. Um, mm -hmm. but, but if I'm thinking about how I would approach this, if there were an instance where I discovered a difference between the way the new version of Rails behaves and the old version, and I needed to add some code, I would probably try to um, apply the fix both to this like new branch, if you're doing the the thing on a branch and the original one too if possible because it seems like the bigger the delta you have between the the current version's code base and the new version's code base the more risk is going to be there um or maybe it just works out fine and you're able to apply the things only in the new branch and that's generally okay but how do you generally handle those kind of things yeah um 
I think um, there are ways to handle that sort of stuff where, uh, you know, dual booting usually means that you're running your test suite twice uh, to make sure your branch works with both current version of Rails and next version of Rails, right? So in order to do that, sometimes you need to write some sort of um, shim or like a Ruby shim that says, if Rails version is this, then call this method of active record. Else, just keep using the same old, uh, you know, method. So yeah, you can definitely uh, basically write a lot of if-else conditions in your code base in a big Rails upgrade project. And I don't want to say it sucks, but it is it is very useful. And then after you're done shipping the changes to production and everything is working with the next version of Rails, you can just go in and clean all those if-elses from your code base. I see. Okay. And at what point do you start deploying the new version to production? Because that seems like it could be another pain point is everything works fine locally, but then you deploy it and some new mysterious problem arises. So when do you get that part started? Yeah, so that's another thing that we learned going back to your question about like what have we changed. It's like dual booting is great for development and for test uh, environments. You know, you can quickly debug the problems and fix them. But then when it comes to deployments, you can actually use dual booting to gradually deploy your changes to production. Um, we have done this um, for SoundCloud, actually. We worked on a big upgrade project for SoundCloud a couple of years ago, and they were using Kubernetes and dual booting. And what we did is like every time we needed to ship something to production, we would configure it so 10% of the traffic would hit the pods uh, running the next version of Rails. We would monitor, you know, the error error rates and error um, exception tracking service and all that. And if there were any regressions, we could quickly, you know, flip that off and say, okay, you know, all the traffic now continues to run with the current version of Rails, uh, and we need to fix fix this regression. Um, and those, you know, those sort of things are going to happen. They're normal, and gradual deployments are really useful for reducing risk. So if you break something, uh, not 100% of your users see it, and only 10% of the, the, the visitors see it, and um, it's not a, a terrible day at the office, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for parallelism in general when you're doing when you're doing these projects that seem like this big risky change from the old way to the new way, to the extent that the two things can be done in parallel, uh, you'll make your life a lot easier. Speaking of Kubernetes, when I migrated at my last job, when I migrated from, um, what was it? First Elastic Beanstalk, then an Ansible-based AWS deployment, and then Kubernetes was the third way. Um, when I was migrating us from the AWS Ansible deployment to Kubernetes on AWS, I did that in such a way so that the two were running in parallel so that if for some reason uh, the Kubernetes infrastructure turned out to have some non-obvious bug and we needed to quickly revert back to the old infrastructure, uh, it would be as simple as visiting a different subdomain or something like that. I don't remember the details of how I arranged the parallelism, but the point is that I still had the old infrastructure up and running while the new infrastructure was in place. Because you never want like a hard cutover where the old way is gone forever and you can never go back to it. Yeah, and you know the alternative with uh, Rails upgrades is to do a big bang deployment uh, to say, okay, tomorrow everything is going to be running the next version of Rails. And that's risky. You know, like that's, um, we did a, that approach a couple of times. And the one thing that you have to have ready to go is a revert PR um, that rolls back everything. So if you're like, okay, Big Bang is going online at 8 a.m. You have the revert PR ready to go in case, you know, 
8 a.m. You roll it out, you get traffic. And it's like, oh, shoot, there are tons of errors happening. Uh, a lot of things, edge cases that we didn't think about or the test suite missed. So we need to roll it back right away. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the way you. to do it. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but like, um, there's something that just seems so demoralizing about reversions, like deploying something and then having to roll it back. Obviously, it's a failure. There's no other way to paint it besides it's, it's a failure. Um, and it feels bad. And then, like, it, it creates some bad feelings around the second attempt, you know? Because mm-hmm. you're about to do this thing again. Last time it went poorly, and now you're going to do it again. And everybody's, you know, probably kind of expecting problems again. And then, God forbid, you should have to revert it a second time. So it's, it's uh, like we said, it's like much better to just not put yourself in that situation where you're doing a big bang deployment and you're wholly dependent on the new thing. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why companies sometimes fail to to upgrade their dependencies and to to keep up with their the latest releases. It's like maybe they're not aware that you can gradually deploy something to production. Um, maybe you know, yeah, they're afraid of of messing things up. So it's like, why mess with a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's working with Rails four, so why do we need to upgrade a Rails four one? Um, and it's okay to 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 say that when you know Rails four one just came out. You know, I'm I'm usually a a, a lagger laggard. Like yeah. I, I, I take a long time to upgrade my projects too, but it needs to be a habit that you do. And sometimes, you know, your your platforms, uh, whatever you're using to deploy, will force it on you. Um, one of our recent clients, you know, has been pushed to upgrade because of heroku you know they're running on heroku heroku is deprecating their stacks uh you know heroku 18 is gonna be dead next year so that pushes some of our our clients to be like on the lookout for upgrades uh but if you don't have something like that and you can just keep you know a really old version running in production sometimes uh the other motivation that we see a lot is security you know like some of these companies are really, really big, and they have their own security departments. And one of the main drivers to say, hey, we really need to upgrade this version is their security officer saying, like, hey, we can't be running this in production because it's a huge risk if um, anybody exploits the, these one of these known vulnerabilities, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough thing because it's one of those things where it's like you'll never – have a problem like the the change between the severity of the problem between yesterday and today is never very big but then like it becomes a problem all at once you could maybe kind of compare it to exercise or something like that like if i didn't exercise yesterday and then again i don't exercise today i'm not noticeably less healthy but then if i continue that pattern for 40 years then I might have a heart attack and die. Uh, whereas if I just exercised every day, that wouldn't happen. But it's really easy to just put it off one day at a time for years on end. Yeah, I uh, I can relate to that. And I need to go exercise right now. So, <laughs> bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. Side note, I like I had a week or two where I was just like feeling like crap completely and I decided that what I need what I needed was some exercise and so I got on my bike. I like kind of told my wife that like, "Hey, this might seem weird, but I just like really need to go on just a super long bike ride today." So, I went on like a 2-hour bike ride and it was like magic, like problem solved. Like it felt like I had all these like problems but like you know like i had like explanations for like oh this is wrong in my life and this is wrong and this is wrong but then i went on a bike ride and it's like oh yeah actually everything's fine i was just like feeling crappy because i didn't exercise that's a great example i um i get depressed pretty often in front of the computer here in this office i think um 
I think we we all get there, right? Like we're trying to solve a problem, we can't do it. We write the code that's supposed to fix the problem, and in theory, it should, and it doesn't. <laughs> and it's like um, it works so well to just go out for a walk or go um, get out there and see nature. You know, see the the, the sky. Um, yeah. So yeah, definitely, definitely important. Yeah, it's easy to forget in our modern world that we have certain psychological and physiological needs. And if those needs aren't met, then we're going to have some problems. Yeah, for me, I, you know, for the last year, I've been working out of our basement. There's like, there is a window, but there's like a heavy curtain over it. And it's a small window anyway. So I'm basically in this windowless room. There's all this crap everywhere in the basement. Um, and it's frankly just kind of a depressing atmosphere and spending all day, every day down here can be a little bit depressing. You know, people have a need to like see some sunlight and stuff like that. So yeah, it's obviously super, not that we're saying anything profoundly new or anything here. Everybody knows this, <laughs> but maybe it's good to have a reminder once in a while to do those things that you know you need to do. Oh yeah, it is. It is a good reminder. Um, to get out there when you're stuck and where you're feeling sad and um but yeah anyway <laughs> I, I don't want to go too down this rabbit hole because um yeah i think you know it's it's a thorny issue and um anyway let's yeah. go let's talk about code you know <laughs> <laughs> well uh it's like you've never been on this podcast before Ernesto. Er, ernesto Wow, I just screwed up your name in like a way that's maybe never been done before. What did I even call you? Ornesto? Um, anyway. That's a new one. Yeah. Um, anyway, Ernesto. Um, yeah, let's get back to the, the technical stuff. So maybe we can talk about the uh, performance uh, performance services. So I first heard about this through Twitter. I, saw, I think I saw something from Nate Berkepec uh, announcing that you guys and he were doing this service together, but yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. So, um, we've always been interested in performance and helping our clients, um, you know, make their apps faster and consume less resources. Um, and I knew Nate from, you know, from conferences and I think, um, you know, we, we became friends over a few conferences ago and, I knew that he had this offer called Tune, and I knew he wasn't doing it anymore. And I thought, hey, I, I, I talked to him, and I was like, hey, why don't you know Fast Ruby? Why why don't we do it? And why don't you help us understand like your process and the information that's important to provide value to the clients? And he was like, yeah, let's let's do it. So we partnered, and he has helped us train our full-time engineers to try to understand like how to process the data from the APMs and from the applications that we're, we're working on. And so far, we've done about three Tomb reports, and all the feedback we've gotten has been super positive. Um, and some applications you know, are like doing really well, and I think there's still value there where we come in, we look at your performance data, and we tell you you're doing really well. But there's this 20% of the configuration that you could optimize to be even better. Uh, and then there's some issues uh, or some projects that have a lot more issues. And I think it's still helpful to get a third party to come in and basically confirm what you already know. It's mm -hmm. like, hey you're loading too much JavaScript in every page. 90% um, of this JavaScript files that you're loading, they're not really getting used. So maybe you need to like re-architect uh, the, the JS part of the application. Uh, and one yeah, thing that sorry, I think I, is... Oh, yeah, interrupt? go ahead. I think that's a really important point you raise about like having a third party come in and tell you... I forget how you, you said it exactly, but like... Um, you know, sometimes you don't really have a frame of reference or you don't really know what's normal or what's not normal or whatever. It's like I I might think of an analogy of like having a professional chef come to my house and watch me cook some food sometime. 
And he might be like, oh, yeah, the way you chop an onion, that's exactly the way I chop an onion. That's that's great. And it's like, okay, yeah, like, I thought so, too. Like, I didn't think I had any had, had any problems there, but, like, it's good to get that confirmation. And then other things that I had no idea about, maybe, like, he would say, like, uh, I don't know, like, you should keep your pots and pans in this different cupboard. Then you could, like, get at them faster. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but just stuff like that. I can I can see the value in that even if it's like nothing all that profound just like that sanity check of somebody who you know is an expert just like taking a look at things and saying this is good this is good no this is like you should do this different yeah yeah and I think uh, it's important to to basically focus on on the configuration of your application first and sometimes we find like these clients that have over-provisioned their applications and they're like, well, just in case, let's add more processes here and let's add more containers here. And it's like, yeah, okay, I mean, I get it, but that's not optimal. You know, you could reduce the number of pods that you have and just increase the number of processes inside the pod and, and stuff like that where I think Nate has some really great articles on the average request queue time. And that's one of the things that we look at because um, it's so impactful to just go in and look at the way that the application is provisioned and then do some tweaks to make sure that the requests are not just like sitting there waiting to be served. Um, so that's one thing that we did for one of our clients. And this is the same client where we started doing Rails upgrades. We offered them uh, a free Tune report because we, we were just so interested in seeing their application and improving it for them. And we gave them a recommendation to change their configuration to be better provisioned and their average request queue time became more stable. And it wasn't just fluctuating constantly like between like peak times and non-peak times. Uh, and we did see uh, direct impact in their average page load time by just tweaking that one thing. And I know they had been w working or they had been concerned about the average page load time for many years. And to come in and say like, oh, you know, if you change this configuration to have these amount of pods and processes inside the pods, it's going to be better. And your average request queue time is going to be stable and you're going to be able to serve requests faster. Um, yeah, yeah, that's so great. I had a job once where um, I was able to give them a 30% improvement in their test suite runtime with a one-line change. And that just felt so great to be able to do that. Yeah. It's like, and then they they might ask you like, what? How much are you charging me? It was <laughs> just one line. <laughs> right. Like, exactly. Yeah, but I knew mm -hmm. which line to change. <laughs> yeah, it's that story about like this consultant went into this factory and they like tapped some something or other with a hammer a couple times and then gave a $5,000 invoice and they're like the cost of uh s swinging the hammer my the charge for my labor is $5 and then the other $4,995 is for knowing where to hit the hammer. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah, and that's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um yeah, and it speaks to the value of like having a specialty doing the same thing over and over. You kind of um develop heuristics and you recognize patterns, you know what to look for and stuff like that so you can deliver a large amount of value in a short amount of time. Yeah, and like you said, like we have uh, a couple more tune reports lined up for the end of the year and we can basically use the information that we already have from other clients and to to improve like other you know future clients uh, operations and configuration. Um, so yeah, we we're definitely excited in this. And one of the things that we want to do more of is not just the tune report, but also if the clients want us to, you know, implement the fixes for them, like we are ready to do it because <laughs> we're a consulting shop. So we're definitely looking to not just be like, oh, you need to improve this. We would love to just change it for them and actually see the results um, and basically be like, hey, you know, we reduced your monthly 
AWS bill by 20%. And that's about five grand because you have so many servers. So the Tomb Report and our services kind of pay for themselves at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, that Those things are really great, both the um, Tune Report and the um, Rails Upgrade service, because like you said earlier, they're both like very clear, concrete. Um, it's like you either upgrade the Rails version or you don't. Your app's either faster or it's not. It's very clear that something happened. Yeah, I love the idea of productized services and this is similar you know um fastruby.io is a productized rails upgrade service um we recently launched uh, upgradejs.com that's the same idea but for node you know like we are currently working on a node upgrade report to go from 10 node 10 to node 18 and we yeah we just love the idea of like the problem is outdated dependencies, or the problem is a slow Ruby application. We're going to give you a solution for that. And the scope, like you said, is so clear that it's like easy to, to be like, did we do the job or not? And if we didn't, it's very clear, and we can you know make it right. But if we did, then the client is like, okay, great. These guys said they're going to upgrade the application uh, to Rails 7 in six weeks, and they did it. Great. They're happy, and hopefully that brings more business in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I going to ask you next? Um, oh, yeah, I wanted to make kind of a comment and hear your thoughts, too, if you have some thoughts. Um, the term productized service is something I've heard many times over the years, um, especially because as, as I think you know, Ernesto, I was a freelancer on and off for many years, um, the better part of a decade, actually. Um, and so I was part of certain freelancing circles and stuff like that. And this term productized service kept coming up. It's very common advice, like, oh, you should start a productized service. But it's one of those things that's like so much easier said than done. And if you look around for examples, there aren't a lot of examples of productized services that developers have um, figured out how to do. Um, Yours is one of the few that I've seen, and I think that's really interesting. And obviously, Nate Berkebeck's performance work is is kind of another example. Um, The closest I have personally gotten is teaching classes, which is interesting because I never thought of it in that way. but that's that's something that totally totally works. You know, it's a fairly concrete need an organization has for whatever reason. There can be a variety of reasons, but they have some kind of educational need, and you're a person who offers um, that service, and then they hire you to do it, and it's pretty clear cut. Um, yeah, but I was just wondering if if you had any thoughts on the whole productized service thing. Like, were you seeking a productized service, and that's how you arrived at this? Or did did the upgrade Rails thing come first, and then you kind of realized, oh, I have a productized service here. I'll, I'll run with this. Or how how did all that go? Yeah, um, I think productizing a service was an idea that I heard in a podcast many years ago. Um, I think the guys, one of the guys from Bootstrap Web, uh, the podcast. Uh, was all about it and even offered a course on it. And I bought the course many years ago and I thought, this is so cool. How can we do this um, for my software development company? And the main motivation behind it was um, picking a niche, you know, picking a vertical. I was a little tired of competing with hundreds of Rails agencies out there. Um, when I started the company, this was about 10 years ago, you know, what's what's the difference between a Rails agency uh, called Ombu Labs or another one called, whatever, Foo Labs? Um, there, it's it's just like very hard. It's kind of like a race to the bottom, I think. And sometimes you find these clients that are just like, well, why should I hire you guys instead of the other guys? And I didn't really have a good answer to that. So I thought, well, if we specialize in certain verticals, we can be competing with 
you know, one to five uh, agencies out there. Um, and, you know, the Rails upgrade world is very small. I actually know all of the agencies that do these sort of uh, projects, and we talk, you know, pretty often. But it's nice to be competing against them, and one out of five is much, you know, the odds are much better than one against 100. So that's one of the main motivations there. Yeah, I think that's really smart. Um, and I encountered the same exact thing as an individual freelancer. I raised my rate periodically, um, but once I got over a certain threshold, I started getting the question of why should I pay you this much? Uh, why should I pay you so much more than we pay anybody else? Mm-hmm. And it's a fair question, you know, and I did not have an answer. And so I was never able to raise my rate to, to where I wanted to beyond a certain point. Um, and so eventually I had to figure out, like, what's that answer going to be? And I, I since have no longer been freelancing, but now my answer would be, well, maybe that I just don't sell myself as somebody who does that kind of work anymore. Because, again, it's like as an individual freelancer, you're competing against so many people, um, thousands at, at least. Um, and so to to enter a different category you know for me for example i could um i could instead like be a guy who helps you with your test suite make it faster and help your developers develop um better testing skills stuff like that there's not a lot of people who do that and so that would be a much easier sell and with that kind of thing i'm curious about this but um I'm guessing that the fees, the fee amounts, are not quite so much an issue. Um, maybe people ask you how much it is, and you tell them, and they're like, all right, let's get started. Is that kind of how it goes, or how does that part of the conversation usually go? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk about that, but I am interested about your your niche. Is that hmm. how you ended up being the, the Rails testing guy? Is that the niche that you were like, okay, this is where I'm going to focus for the next few years? Good question. Um, so I'll tell you how that specialty, that focus arose. So you know about 30 by 500, obviously. Um, you went through that program, is that right? Or did you not? Yeah, I, I, I'm sad to say that I'm halfway through, and I have been halfway through it for about two or three years. I but see. yes, I, I know what you're talking about. Okay, yeah, well, I joined that in like 2018. Um, and basically, the kind of the idea with 30 by 500, it's a class that teaches you how to sell products online, more or less. Um, and part of the methodology it teaches you is to go go searching for pains people have, people things people are complaining about on forums and stuff like that. Oh, this is this is hard. I can't figure this out, that kind of thing. And I because I was and still am a Rails developer, I went looking for pains related to Ruby on Rails and I discovered that a lot of people had a hard time with testing. And that's something that wasn't a particular specialty of mine, um, but it was something I felt comfortable with. And so I decided to address some of those pains. And again, kind of the 30 by 500 way is you find those pains and then you deliver some kind of educational lesson to address that pain. It can be a blog post or some other format, but for me, I'm comfortable writing, so so I did blog posts. And that got a bit of traction and the, the traction turned into kind of a positive feedback loop. The more traction I got, the more it made me motivated to write and do more. And that was now, you know, four or five years ago. And I don't know, you know, I don't know how other people perceive me, you know. It's it's hard to know because I'm me. Um, if I were somebody else, maybe I could have a better idea of my standing in the community or, or what I'm known for or that kind of thing. But it generally seems to be the case that people, uh, it's it's common that people are aware of who I am when I go to conferences and stuff like that, and they associate me with testing. Um, so that's, that's kind of where that came from. Cool. Yeah, I really like the content in 30 by 500, and I learned a lot, and 
part of it was just validating that what we had been doing at FastRuby.io was the right thing to do. Uh, we have been sharing, you know, our recipes and our best practices and our guides to be, you know, to upgrade Rails with anybody. So if you want to just DIY it, you can just go read our content, read our, get our, you know, PDF with the complete guide to upgrade Rails and do it yourself. But, you know, if if you don't have the time but and you have the budget, you come to us and you hire us to do it for you. Um, and when it comes to rates, um, well, we usually work on a roadmap to, to upgrade, and that one is now priced at $12,000. And that usually gets you one major version jump, and it's a report that tells you if you want to upgrade from 4.2 to 5.2, these are all the steps you're going to need to do. And if we were to do it for you, it's going to take, you know, between 10 and 14 developer weeks. Um, and you can work with two or three of our developers on that project. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, with with the way that that came about, it seems like, well, I've tried things in the past that seemed like big gambles, like does anybody want this? That kind of thing. But you kind of uh, you're able to do it with one client, and because that worked, it probably did. It ever feel like it was a big risky bet? This this idea of doing this service, like you're pouring all this effort into like making a website for it and stuff like that, but you're not sure if people want it, or were you like sure enough that it didn't really feel like a gamble? No, it felt like a gamble for <laughs> sure for like two years. Um, it felt like a gamble. And then eventually it started working. Um, it started working, I think, because of SEO and all the content marketing we've been doing over the years. Um, but yeah, I don't know if today I would be so patient to say, oh, you know, upgradejs.com. This is like a new gamble, right? So we already have a client that's working with us on a note upgrade project so that's some form of validation like big company has a problem and they're hiring us to do it right but yeah i don't know it's like a new tech stack so maybe we will give it a year and we'll see if we were right if we had the hypotheses right and it worked for more than just one client uh, right now we are focusing on node.js uh, because we see that the release schedule and the release timeline is um, comparable to Rails in a way. It's like there is clear, there are like clear guidelines into like what versions are going to be released, what's the LTS version, what version is getting security patches, uh, and for how long. So we like that, and that helps us like plan our marketing efforts as well. Nice. Um... Yeah, well, this has been really interesting to learn about. You know, obviously, I knew about the the Rails upgrade service before, but I didn't know quite as much about the whole history of it, and obviously, not the JavaScript upgrade service and the performance stuff and all that. Um, my last question I want to ask you before we uh, before we go is: Where can people go online to find out about any of these services you provide, or if somebody wants to? It sounds like you have resources for if people want to figure out how to do these upgrades on their own. Um, where should people go to find all that stuff? Sure. Yeah. So if uh, anybody's interested in Rails upgrades or Rails performance, they can just go to fastruby.io slash blog. And we usually share as much as we can there. For anybody who wants to DIY it, they can just read uh, the articles there. And if you're interested in the Node.js upgrade service, it's upgradejs.com slash blog. Uh, we don't have as many articles there, but we are planning to publish a lot more articles about our experience upgrading these clients' um, applications there. And uh, yeah, if you if anybody's going to be at RubyConf Mini, uh, I'll be there. I don't know if this article, this uh, episode is going to be published on time but i think so if any... when, when does oh. rubyconf mini happen so that's in two weeks so november 15th i think okay yeah it might come out just in time or just after <laughs> okay cool uh 
how much do I have to pay you to get this released on time? <laughs> <laughs> That's another business idea for you. There we go. <laughs> yeah, but I think what you're saying is if anybody's at uh, RubyConf Mini, uh, come say hi or something like that. Yeah, yes. Come say hi. And uh, I do have one question for you. As um, You organized this awesome conference in Vegas, Sin City Ruby. I know you said something about a future conference. So uh, is that happening? Is it going to, you know, the the people want to know. Like, we're all excited to, to see what you can put to put together again. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for that. Um, yeah, and I have to talk with my new employer about that. So I haven't said this uh, publicly at all yet, but I have a new job I, for the last... Uh, I started about two and a half weeks ago as of this recording. Um, so obviously I'm going to have to talk with them about all that. And I haven't, we haven't talked about that yet. But as long as that's all good, which I assume it will be, then yeah, I'm planning to do it again. Maybe not in Vegas, maybe somewhere closer to, to where I live in Michigan. Maybe in Vegas again. I, I don't know. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I think like Vegas is kind of a fun destination but also it's a little bit tough to organize a conference that's so far away from where you live so all that is tbd i'm not even sure if i'm doing the conference at all but my hope is that i can well you heard it here first (laughs) folks stay tuned for new announcements about sin city ruby or detroit yeah detroit ruby whatever it's (laughs) whatever it ends up being yeah cool well, thanks for having me. It's been a blast, and I hope uh, yeah, we can talk again soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for coming on the show.